the goal of these seminars is really to do something I think we don't feel the K-Review fully did, which is to ask the question, uh, is there any relationship between UK company law um, and uh, the regulation of corporate activity more broadly, and short-termist activity within the boardroom in, in the UK? And, and to ask that question and then to think about what we might do differently, and we think that is uh, the case. Um, and so we're starting with takeovers today, uh, but we're also going to have a couple more seminars in which we look at shareholder rights, uh, we look at disclosure regulation, and we look at uh, preemption rights. Uh, we're starting with takeovers, and I think in part my role here today is I think, to provide some context for all of these seminars, but uh, particularly uh, for uh, today. Um, I think one of the goals of the three seminars is to go beyond maybe to go beyond regulatory pride. We're very proud of many of our corporate legal institutions, rightly so. We're very proud of the takeover panel. We're very proud of uh, the Companies Act. Um, but that can't, I think, get in the way of us subjecting these rules to serious scrutiny and to see whether they are fit for purpose today. Um, and there's one of the really good reasons for uh, subjecting these rules to scrutiny is that things have changed since these rules were first introduced. Um, the takeover code, the subject of today's debate, was introduced first of all in 1959, the notes to the amalgamation of British business, and then again in 1968 when it was reviewed and finally we get the takeover code and uh, the takeover panel. As you all know, the notes and the code were formed uh, by folks in the City of London under the auspices of the Bank of England coming together to produce the code. Uh, the lead role taken in that production was taken by uh, the Issuing Houses Association, British Merchant Banks, as they were called. Uh, one of them in particular, I thought I'd mention today because we've got William, uh, Robert Clark, uh, was one of the four people involved in writing the first code in 1968, uh, was at Hill Samuels, the merchant bank at the time, but was previously a partner at Slaughter and May for eight years. Um, and when those guys were doing the work of drafting the code, things were very different. The context within which these rules are applied is very different to the context which these rules were created, rather, is very different from the context in which they, were, which they are applied today. I could mention maybe just a few things, I could mention others. In 1959, um, shareholders were thought they should know their place, uh, that they really shouldn't interfere in the corporate bastion, that should be allowed to get on with the job of running the company. Hostile takeovers were very disapproved of in the City of London. Um, in the 1950s, but also in the 1960s, um, the city of London and British business was a place that was heavily reliant upon relationships. Uh, people knew each other, or there were only limited degrees of separation between each other. And those relationships were useful in certain instances, useful to managers they could rely on them. In 1958, approximately 60% of UK PLC was owned by individuals. Less than 15% in 1958 owned by institutions. In 1968, 25% owned by institutions, but still 45% owned by individuals, which is profoundly different from the situation today, where the market is, of course, populated by institutions. And as part of uh, the process of the increasing institutionalization of UK markets, of course, financial intermediation has profoundly transformed since the time when the code was created. Now, this has obviously created a situation in which there is a sense that capital market, these changes have resulted in capital markets that are strongly short-termist in orientation. Um, now, I'm not going to talk about whether or not that's the case in any great depth. I think we probably have to take 
the K-Reviews diagnosis is given for the purpose of today's conversation. There are clear drivers of uh, that process of uh, a lead towards a short-term orientation. We could talk about the change in the sorts of investors in the marketplace. We could talk about fund management benchmarking. But clearly one of the primary problems that that short-term orientation has led to is that we think, at least, that capital markets undervalue long-term investment. They'd much rather take the cash now than support long-term <coughs> long investment in the future. Now, if we take that as given, it's not clear that it's necessarily a problem for boardrooms. Because as Kay pointed out, and Mark Rowe from the Harvard Law School has pointed out, it's naive to think that just because markets have a short-term orientation, the boards have a short-term orientation. There has to be a link between market short-termism and the boardroom. There has to be a transmission mechanism to transmit that short-term orientation into the boardroom. And so that leads to two other questions for us. First of all, is there any empirical evidence of that transmission of the short-term orientation into the boardroom? And if there is, then what is that transmission mechanism? And for today's purposes, do, does the market for corporate control and UK takeover regulation play a role in facilitating such a transmission mechanism. Let's first of all look at the empirical evidence very quickly in my 12 and a half minutes. Uh, the, the quantitative evidence uh, that we have, um, it's very mixed. We, can, we do find empirical studies uh, that support the idea that public companies invest less in R&D and become less innovative when they go from private to public. But we also find empirical evidence that supports the claim uh, that the greater the institutional presence in a company, the higher the R&D. So it's very mixed. The latter evidence is rather old. And also importantly, most of this evidence is American. And therefore of limited value to us because that evidence is drawn from companies that are subject to very different regulatory regimes. The qualitative evidence is arguably a little bit more compelling. We could refer to lots of things here. I've just got a couple of things on the board. Uh, a recent quote from BlackRock and an article from the FT talking about buybacks. Too many companies have cut capital expenditure and even increased debt to boost dividends and increase share buybacks. Work by Demarac uh, in 1995 and again in 1998 uh, carrying out, carrying out uh, qualitative work with uh, UK uh, finance directors. Most UK group finance directors perceive short-term pressures which tend to reduce R&D expenditures and other activities required for successful innovation. Turn to even more general evidence, this is drawn from the K-Review, on, on UK investment and UK R&D. Um, I've taken both of these slides from the, uh, uh, the K-Review, and apparently due to austerity measures, um, it's only possible for the Department of Business to use the colour blue. Um, so it's, it's rather difficult to work out uh, what, what this is, but, uh, but I can tell you, this line is the UK, right? Uh, which basically means that we're below par uh, in relation to all countries apart from France in the early 2000s. Um, so business investment lower than some of our principal uh, uh, country competitors, if you like. Uh, and there's another slide, which I haven't included here, which is R&D. Uh, R&D investment as compared to Germany, uh, the United States and France. And on that slide, we are very clearly below par in relation to all of those countries. So there's clearly something going on. There's some empirical support for the possibility that market short-termism is being transmitted into the boardroom. Now, if that's the case, what is the theoretical case for there being a transmission mechanism? And is it the case that different countries that do better on some of those metrics... Um, are not subject to the same transmission mechanism, at least to the same extent. 
Um, so let's look at takeovers. I've got a couple of more minutes, Jeffrey. Yeah, I'll look at takeovers and then uh, I will stop talking. So it's clear that there could be two types of transmission mechanism. Transmission mechanism number one could be a mechanism that connects board pay, board rewards, to market incentives, right? Second transmission mechanism could be a transmission mechanism that decreases the probability that managers keep their jobs unless they adapt market short-term preferences. And we're talking clearly about the second one here. It's clearly possible that the sense of being exposed to possible takeover or the sense that your board might respond to that possible takeover might incentivize managers to adopt short-term solutions, to return cash rather than investing in the long term. And the strength of that perception that you could be subject to that mechanism is a function of several factors, a function of hostility levels, M&A deal levels in the marketplace. But then very importantly, I think it's subject to these factors. First of all, ownership structure. If you have a controlling owner, a controlling owner, a blockholder that is supportive of management, well then you're not really exposed to that transmission mechanism. Um, if you have a widely held company, then other factors come into play. Most importantly, takeover regulations. If you have a widely held company, but you are capable of using takeover defences to deflect uh, that transmission mechanism, and again, you're going to feel that you don't necessarily have to adapt to the market's preferences. In the UK, clearly that's not available. We have the non-frustration rule that pretend, protect, prevents boards from taking any action when, there is any, when a bid is imminent or a bid has commenced. So if you've got a company that is widely owned in the UK subject to the non-frustration rule. Uh, the final factor of importance is whether or not shareholders will either follow managers' lead and refuse to sell if you say don't sell. And secondly, if you have shareholders that truly believe it's in the long-term interest to hold this stock, will any of those shareholders still sell when it's their view that they should, in the long-term interest of their ultimate beneficiaries, hold that stock? In relation to the first one, do shareholders, do fund managers follow managers' lead? Well, we used to think that they did. There's certainly a sense in the marketplace um, or there used to be a sense that they would follow their lead. Whether that's still there, given the um, transformation in the ownership of UK PLC from domestic to, um, uh, to foreign institutions is unclear. In relation to the second, I think there is concern that even though fund managers think it's in the long-term interest to hold this share, that they would still sell. Why? Because when they look at the sell decision, they're thinking about what their competitive fund managers are also doing. If some of those competitive fund managers sell into the marketplace, you have to decide what you're going to do. And you, you, have, you will know when you're making that decision that if you choose not to sell and the deal fails, that your competitive fund managers will have pocketed a significant amount of cash, which will improve their returns in the period in question and make your returns look worse, which could incentivize you to sell when thinking very carefully about wanting to make sure that you hit your benchmark and you do as well as your competitors. So in the UK, I think a very strong case uh, that uh, UK, the UK takeover market and UK takeover regulation and fund manager behaviour could be driving, could be this transmission mechanism. Now, I've spoken for too long, and I just need to cover a couple of things. Uh, the comparative case, when we remember back to the, the K slide I put, uh, I, I put up here, uh, the comparative case is clear in other jurisdictions that transmission mechanism is not as effective. 
in the United States because they have takeover defences and weaker shareholder rights on the whole. In uh, countries like Germany or Austria, for instance, uh, because uh, managers typically benefit from uh, a friendly blockholder or controlling shareholder. Um, so it's clear that the takeover market and UK takeover regulation can operate as a transmission mechanism, which is a problem. Now, if we were to therefore change those rules to dampen that transmission mechanism, we would also have to take account of the fact that this would involve serious trade-offs. It's often thought that the market for corporate control is a means of holding managers accountable, ensuring that they don't act in their own interest and they act in the shareholders' interest. And clearly there would be a trade-off if we were therefore to change these rules to dampen that transmission mechanism. But we have to ask ourselves, I think, whether we have the right balance. Whether we have the right balance, because clearly we're very heavily focused on accountability. Now, my final slide, and then I'll hand over to um, William and Ian. Uh, the question that follows if this diagnosis is correct. If it is correct that it is a transmission mechanism, and it's correct that we've got the balance wrong, what should we do about it? And three options have been laid on the table um, since Cadbury and Kraft. Disenfranchisement of short-term shareholders, doing something about the non-frustration rule, and doing something about the acceptance threshold. The only one that's had any real traction is the worst of these three, disenfranchisement. Disenfranchisement uh, is practically impossible um, and also completely misunderstands uh, the problem. Because short-term merger ARBs buy the shares in the marketplace. Where do they buy the shares from? They buy those shares from long-term shareholders. So that doesn't work, and these two have had limited traction. They've had limited traction because they swim very clearly against the tide, the regulatory tide, which is to focus on shareholders and to empower shareholders. These two are about the empowerment of the board. Okay, and this is what I want us to encourage us to think about, to swim against that tide and think about the empowerment of the board. The first one would involve either the reform or the abolition of the non-frustration rule. Okay? Now, in my view, that wouldn't create a significant degree of defensive capability, but it would create some, and we could create more if you were to combine the abolition of the non-frustration rule with some additional changes to shareholder rights in the UK, which we'll talk about in our other seminars. The other one is the, an easier one, I think. And I think the objections that have been made to this are weak. You change the acceptance threshold. You raise the acceptance threshold, which is contingent upon board approval. You raise it to 66 and 230, even 75%. And that threshold goes up if the board objects to the deal. That would provide a significant degree of dampening for this transmission mechanism. Now, I will hand over to William next. Yeah, yeah. William next, yes. I'll go next. Thank you, David. Um, it's a great honour to be here after... Um, an academic, a humble practicing lawyer, but um, maybe some perspective from what I observed within the boardroom. But before getting onto that, just by way of introduction and to develop some of what David was talking about, it does seem to me that the current initiatives that we see for developing long-term uh, attitudes within boardrooms are all at the moment focused on shareholders. There's an assumption that shareholders can be persuaded to behave in the right way to encourage long-term behaviours by boards. How you achieve that is not clear, and whether shareholders will buy into it is not clear, but there are no rules that will compel them to do so. All that you have to rely on is their belief that it's a good thing, and tested against those, those issues that David mentioned in terms of performance and uh, their need to sell their funds... Uh, maybe we're entitled to be a bit sceptical about that. So if we won't 
persuade institutions to change their ways, we do have to look at some of these, if you like, sacred cows of UK corporate governance and the corporate law framework within which companies operate to see whether they are creating an imbalance in the power between shareholders and, uh, and boards. And, and takeovers is just one part of that. Because the other seminars, I hope, are going to get into the other issues. Things like preemption rights, things like disclosure obligations, continuous disclosure and the pressure always to keep the market up to date and whether that allows boards the time and the room to develop proper long-term <coughs> plans. But anyway, today we talk about takeovers. So what's the reality? The reality about takeovers in the UK is that price wins. It's a game of top dollar, top dollar is always going to succeed. There is a price for every company, and the whole takeover exercise is about finding that price. Once you get that price, then it's known that boards will recommend, shareholders will accept, and the company will be sold. It remains the case. Around the world, the UK is the easiest place to buy public companies. There is no question about that. Is that a good thing? Does that contribute to short-termism? Uh, I think that it does, because boards, to some extent, in their consideration of their long-term plans, will have in mind acceptability to shareholders, both because of immediate impact on share price, but also vulnerability to takeovers. So UK boards are vulnerable to takeovers. More importantly, I think, they feel vulnerable to takeovers, and that's what influences behaviour. Now, the, the panel have done good things recently to try to bolster the position of, of boards. There's no doubt that the recent rules which promote early outing of bidders so people know who they are and then have a short put-up-or-shut-up deadline, 28 days without the board's approval, is giving some levers to the board which give it a seat at the table which can allow it to influence the takeover outcome. I wonder how long that will last. It depends in part on how long we go on with shareholders who are a bit sleepy. So at the moment you have a situation, you have an announcement, there's a possible offer. Shareholders take a bit of time to get wound up to say, right, board, you've got to talk to these people. And it gives boards a, a good ability to say, just say no. And then they can not cancel the, um, the offer. The, the bidder has to say he's not going to bid and then he's shut out effectively for six months. Uh, and that's enough time for everybody to move on. So that's, that's a good innovation, but it has its limits, and it depends at the moment on that sleepiness of shareholders. We come back to the fact that if you have an all-cash offer at a reasonable premium that is pitched right compared to the market and compared to premium that people are expecting, most boards are going to be advised by their advisors they've got to talk, they have to open their doors, the due diligence has to commence, and once that happens you're on a track that leads almost inevitably to a transaction. Maybe it's worth just thinking about how the boards, the boards that I observe, not mentioning any names in particular, but, but boards in reality approach this question. So a board faced with a takeover issue, what should we do about this approach? We'll talk to their bankers. Their bankers will produce a book. What will the book contain? The book will contain quite a lot on value, It'll compare the value that's offered with historic trading values of the company, comparables, uh, a discounted equity value. That's 
flavour of the month at the moment. That involves projecting forward to what the shares will be worth and then discounting it back to today. Crystal balls being what they are at the moment, you probably look forward two years and discount back. So your, your future value of the company is a two-year horizon, effectively. And you're comparing value you're offered today with that kind of valuation metric. And then other things, the usual things, some of the parts, other transaction comparables, and discounted cash flows. And the discounted cash flow is obviously, is often a huge number with no relation to anything else, and that is usually disregarded. That's what boards look at. What they don't often, you don't often hear boards thinking about impact on the employees, impact on the community, <coughs> impact on suppliers and customers, maybe impact on creditors if there are special issues. But those other wider concerns about the company don't really feature materially, and shareholders, importantly shareholders, don't expect them to feature materially in the board's consideration of takeover offers. So takeover offers are in fact, my perspective, decided on short-term value considerations, not on long-term value that can be created. It's quite interesting, if you go back to all of this, we start off with obviously with Kraft and Cadbury. If you look at the Kraft, the, the Cadbury defense document, it's about 20 odd pages long, it's got really sort of 20 or 20 pages of substance in big writing saying don't accept, of which about two are about culture and other softer issues and the rest is all about value. It's about value trying to create belief in shareholders' minds that, that there was value that needed to be realised. It was about getting the right price. So, uh, that's why I think there's a problem. Thinking about the solutions, I agree with David, the disenfranchisement doesn't really work. It can sort of be made to work, I think, in a fairly, uh, I think, a just about effective way. But for me, it's missing the point. It's not empowering the board to represent the interests of the corporation, its future shareholders, in those discussions. Changing the acceptance threshold with a, a board recommendation condition, I think, would be effective. Um, poison pills. It's really interesting that we don't ever discuss the possibility even of bringing poison pills back. The main problem with, with poison pills frustrating action is how you hold the board to account and prevent them just entrenching themselves. But I suspect if we thought about it, we could come up with some solutions. Maybe we say if you use a poison pill, you have to go back to shareholders within six months and get a retrospective approval and we need to work out the consequences. Some thoughts. Thank you very much. Evening. Maybe should start by giving a little bit of background on uh, a little bit of my background and but form probably some of my opinions this evening. Um, I am currently chairman of Horizon Discovery, which is an AIM listed business that we we uh, listed on AIM in March of this year, which is a quite a complex gene editing business, uh, quite cutting edge. But before that, I was chief executive of a company called Axis Shield, which, um, which is a diagnostics business. And what we did there is we spent a lot of money in many years developing a small machine that sits on a doctor's desk and can do laboratory quali quality tests on small drops of blood in five minutes and give a doctor instant results. 
Um, so we were listed on the main market in London and in Oslo, which is part of the history of the company. Um, and it's fair to say we tested the patience of our investors over many years in delays and extra spending and all that stuff. Uh, but by about 2010, we actually were, were getting into the, the holy grail is the US market. So we got our product launched. We had 10,000 machines sitting on doctors' desks. We got the US approval uh, for, the, for, the, for the key market, which is the US. And then we went to our shareholders and said, we've done all the things we said we'd do. Now it's time to invest a bit of money in sales and marketing to really penetrate the US market. And everybody said, well, that's, that's really great. We're really pleased you're doing that. But we don't really like the impact on the P&L. And, uh, and we got a, a drop in the share price, and quite a few uh, shareholders actually at that point decided that you know, a, a longer-term investment story wasn't really for them, um, which is quite interesting because when you go and speak to, to the investors you know, on your half-yearly roadshows, uh, everybody says, yeah, we're long-term investors. You know, we're, 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 uh, we're in this for the long haul. We don't do short-term stuff. But as soon as you see an impact on the, on the P&L or earnings per share or whatever, it turns out that some of them were quite short-term. And it was quite interesting because some of them said to us, um, well, you know, we really appreciate you doing this, but actually what's going to, the, the business, the, the financials of the business are going to deteriorate for a couple of years. So it'd be better for us just to sell the shares now and they'll take a dip and then we'll, and we'll buy them back at a low and then we'll, we'll make even more money when you're successful five or ten years from now. Which actually, if you're very short term, that does make sense. If you have a share that's worth you know, five pounds and you, you, you can sell it for five pounds a day and buy it back for three pounds in six months' time and then and then sell it for £20 in a few years' time, well, why wouldn't you do that? Uh, but I think, it, as an example, it does inform, uh, certainly as a public company, that you need to be, have a long-term view, but you're also under a lot of pressure for the short-term. Um, you know, as an example, the, the fund managers who invested in our business were, were pretty much judged all universally judged quarterly on the value of their investments. And that's a real challenge, because everybody's long-term, but if the share price slips 5 or 10%, it affects them in their pockets at the end of July or September or December. And so you are managing to that. And, and a lot of the feedback you get from the marketplace, from analysts, from, from advisors, and certainly from fund managers who, who give feedback is very much around, we like the long-term story, but we're almost as interested in the short-term performance of this stock and this business. And I think, as you pointed out, that, that really does, I think it creates a dilemma in the boardroom between... You know, in our case, we've, we've done all the hard work, we've taken all the hits, the share price had gone extremely low, and we were really finally delivering on the promise. Uh, but you're, very, you, you're permanently torn between making decisions for the long term. Do we go and build a sales force in China where there's a big opportunity, but that's expensive and it's risky and it might not deliver for the first couple of years? Or do we, or do we just focus on doing safe things which, which will not have any um, short-term negative impact but probably won't deliver as long-term value? Um, and, and I think um, as a board that's quite challenging it's, it's also quite difficult for management, management as well because management are really on the, on the, on, on the forefront of, 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 um, of, of seeing investors every day talking to analysts and, uh, and you can get some very um, uh, probably not very healthy behaviours about short term focus on the share price you know the share price somebody sold I mean I see this all the time in my companies Somebody sold ten thousand shares this morning at you know five percent less than the closing rate, five percent less than the closing rate yesterday. What happened? Can we find out who did it? Uh, are they selling any more? Um, is there anything we can do about that? And uh, and, it, and you know, and I think this short termism actually gets right through the through the investors into the into the boardroom and, and potentially into the management team to really distract them from 
doing what we should be doing in the business, really. Um, there, and so in, in our case, what happened was, you know, we, it was a classical uh, hostile bid from a US business called Alira. Um, um, they, they approached us early on, we said we weren't interested, so they literally went hostile, they went, they engaged the services of the, of the Times, and, and, um, and uh, I was swimming one morning, got out of the pool at 7.30, and I had um, 45 missed calls on my phone or something, because they'd actually gone hostile that morning. And we've, we spent about nine months, um, all of our shareholders were very supportive, said, you know, yeah, we're absolutely in this for long term, it's a ridiculously low offer. Um, but when it became clear that the other side were not significant, prepared to significantly increase the value of their offer, you know, and two fund managers came, and suddenly you know, we were at 30%, and the business was, uh, to all intents and purposes, gone. Um, so you know, the shareholders got a you know, 45% cash premium on their share price, which that was November 2011, so it wasn't a bad time to be delivering a 40% premium on the share price. But everybody kind of knew that one, two, three years from then, We've driven a lot of the risk out of the business. This business is going to be worth a lot more. I think the business that bought us was our number one competitor. We were going after their market share, so they would buy us, wouldn't they? But, uh, but there certainly wasn't enough um, um, support there in the longer term to, to hold out for two, three or four years to see the story through. Um, and I think that's just the reality of, of managing businesses, um, you know, listed businesses today, is that you have to really manage both sides of the business in the long term and also the short-term issues around the share price. Uh, who are the winners? Well, uh, you know, in some cases, hostile uh, bidders have been, uh, have been the winners, and I think the legislation is very much around that. Um, some of the bigger winners, and probably do things a little bit more quiet, quietly, is private equity, because I think private equity houses are quite smart at seeing a business which is going into transition, which would benefit from, from, from two, three, four years of, of heavy cash investment, and would come out the other end a much stronger business. And they also know, and I think boards of management know that, um, you know, the public markets are, are, are not going to be too excited about a, a massive deterioration in the P&L and, and a big injection of cash into a business to deliver a stronger business, you know, at the end of that process. So, um, uh, you know, I think if you look at some of the private equity stories that, that have gone on and continue to go on, I think private equity houses are doing, actually doing quite well out of that a very short-term uh, pressure on, on boards that, that prevents them from doing things which I think would, would, prevent, would deliver long-term shareholder value. Um, I think that's probably my 10 minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you.